Hey folks, it's Michael. For this episode, I interviewed Phil Loring. Phil is an associate professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Guelph in Western Ontario, Canada. He also holds the Aural Chair in Food Policy and Society, associated with the Aural Food Institute, also at the University of Guelph. We discussed a book that Phil recently completed and which is coming out in the fall of 2020, which is entitled Finding Our Niche. And in this book, Phil explores the assumption that humans and human behavior are inevitably anti-environmental, or say that the tragedy commons is inevitable. And in this book, Phil offers several examples that contradict this assumption by describing how human beings are often able to create self-sustaining relationships with their natural environment. We also talked about Phil's take on important environmental concepts such as sustainability, resilience, and what he calls threshold concepts such as complexity and multiple ways of thinking. And finally, we also talked about a new project going on in Phil's lab, which is a podcast called Coastal Roots Radio, which you should go and check out. And as a final heads up, the folks at Coastal Roots Radio and the Finding Sustainability team are going to have a conversation in a couple of weeks, which will itself be published as an episode on our podcast. So look for that too. Okay, uh, so Phil, you were just talking actually about growing up in Maine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I saw on your website actually you're from coastal Maine, and you had some experience in lobstering, et cetera. I don't know how specific I can get with that verb lobstering, but um, so <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to well, say I grew I, up in Scarborough yeah. in Maine. And, Scarborough, Maine. Um, okay. Yeah, and so it's further south on the coast, just south of Portland and Cape Elizabeth. Um, okay. I did I did work a couple of summers uh, for a lobster pound where we would work with the fishermen who were bringing in the lobster and then and then market them or cook them or sell them out and and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. yeah. So this has honestly been an, I guess it's not that surprising, but a very common refrain of the guests of this show is there are these, and maybe I'm projecting but there are these formative outdoor experiences that people tend to be having. Um, And so, so far you seem to be fitting that mold of, of having um, some initial experiences with natural resources, with the outdoors. Did that ultimately become a significant uh, piece for you when you moved forward and left Maine? It, it did, but I didn't realize it at first, you know, when I left Maine, um, I left Maine for my undergraduate, degree and um, originally thought I was going to go into engineering, but um, that was just not the right path. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was a path suggested by a a guidance counselor who saw that I was good with computers, you know, and back in the early nineties, if you were good with computers, that was the the way they sent you. Right. But, um, but yeah, growing up in Maine, you know, I grew up um, coastal Maine. Our house actually was, was kind of inland a little bit in the woods. And I spent a lot of time there. I also spent a lot of time on, um, out on the water, out on the beach and um, it was really important to me and, and still is, but I, I didn't realize why sort of, or, or how I was anchored to, to that place or those experiences in my boyhood in Maine uh, until much later, um, you know, okay. until I started thinking about things like place and sustainability and environmental issues and being a settler and, um, and all of those things. Yeah. 
I mean, so before we leave, man, I noticed also I saw in one of your writings, you mentioned Bob Senek's work on the gilded traps and the lobsters. And I, I love that. That's 2010, 2011. That is a conservation biology piece about the gilded traps. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really powerful for me because it's, it's this interesting complication of this very traditionally thought of as a common, common success story of the lobster gangs of Maine, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Did you engage much? I mean, how much intellectually have you engaged with like the lobster sector in Maine? I haven't done a lot of research of my own in in lobster fisheries. Um, we're connecting with with folks who fish for lobster more and more now with the work that we're doing through the Coastal Roots Project, which we may talk about um, in a little bit. But mm-hmm. you know what? I think to the same point that you were just making, what jumped out at me about that work is is kind of twofold. There's one. It's you know I've taught ecological anthropology classes where I used, um, you know, the writings about the lobster fisheries, uh, you know, Jim Atchison's work as this sort of quintessential sustainability success story. Yeah. And, and it's more complicated than that. And as it turns out, and, and there's a lot to be learned, I think, in what's happening with that gilded trap with the, the possible vulnerability of, of that system in the Gulf of Maine becoming a sort of a veritable lobster monoculture and, and the vulnerability that comes with that. I think there's something that we can learn about relationships between stability and change and our expectations for things like fisheries. Yeah. So it's, it was a really interesting um, example, a great case. And there's a flip side to it too. I remember the very first, I've sort of progressed in how I thought about that research um, by Stenick and, and, and his colleagues, because at first I, I've always been wary about, sustainability uh, becoming the new civilized meaning you know people going around with frameworks for sustainability and saying to people hey you're not your culture is not sustainable enough Mm -hmm. Uh, and the power um, that's embedded in that and so when i first saw that article um, i i didn't respond to it sort of as positively i didn't learn from it because i was more wary of this possibility of people going from place to place saying hey you're not sustainable enough you need to change the way you live right um and and anyway, so there's, it's it's really sort of nuanced there, but it's a, um, and it was also really important to me because it was where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you do you have a sense of place attachment there still? I do, I do. You know, and it's um, it's been a long time since, other than for except for a handful of days here and there, that I've been able to spend time uh, in Maine. But um, I certainly haven't connected um, with any other place in the same way, um, mm. as I, as I f- sort of still feel this attachment, um, there and, and sort of learning about that learning about myself through that fact has been really interesting. Um, again, to s- sort of thinking about my, my role in that place, my life there, the fact that I'm a settler, that it, it wasn't until I was an adult that I really learned anything meaningful about indigenous, um, peoples of that area where I mm-hmm. grew up and, and so it's a, it's a complex sort of relationship, but I do, I do really miss it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a wind chime hanging out in front of my house. That's, that's designed specifically to sound just like the, the Harbor Bell at the Portland headlight. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how our brains are always sensitive to reminders of the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've used the word I've, I've picked up in this, the, you've used the word settler several times. Mm-hmm. And I think listeners are going to, probably have picked up in as well. Could you talk a bit about what that word means to you? Yeah, I can, you know, and, you know, and since coming to Canada um, and becoming an academic and, you know, it's really developing the majority of my career now in, in Canada, the sort of the language around 
um, being white or being indigenous is different um, mm-hmm. in Canada than it was growing up in the States. And um, more and more people are um, actively identifying themselves as um, settlers as a way to sort of situate ourselves with respect to issues like reconciliation, truth mm-hmm. about colonialism, um, and and so forth. And um, over the course of my career, I've discovered more and more that reconciling that aspect of our individual identities is essential, critical to to figuring out how to do things more sustainably. Mm. Um, that that's part of the foundation that we need to build on. And if we need to do that work too, um, you know, people use words like decolonizing conservation or indigenizing conservation. And as you know, a white person who's the descendant of Scottish and Irish and English ancestors, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's an important part of my identity uh, mm-hmm. to recognize that, you know, yes, I have a strong relationship with um, Maine and the places I grew up, um, but it's different. It's fundamentally different than an indigenous one. And so I, I do um, use that word with intent because I'm still, you know, trying to signal that and trying to understand what that means for me too. Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, um, so I believe you also identify professionally as an anthropologist. Is that correct? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like I'm like a one quarter anthropologist or something like that. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an anthropologist and she was describing this, the reflexive turn in anthropology. Mm-hmm. I don't know when that was 60s, 70s, something like that, where something there was, like that. yeah. And I really like this, this concept of reflexivity um, generalized beyond anthropology is, is the importance of developing a self-awareness of the different identities that we all kind of carry around with us, which are of course, sometimes context specific, like talking to you is different than if I'm talking to my older brother, than if I'm talking to my class, et cetera. Um, and so is that a, um, a meaningful connection to make? I mean, between what you're talking about now in terms of situating your identity as a settler and the kind of this reflexive turn in your field in the past, is that? I think so. I mean, I think sort of academically, I've been influenced by, you know, a number of scholars who uh, were making that argument rather actively with respect to methodologically how we do anthropology, mm-hmm. um, the importance of recognizing that, that um, it's not this dispassioned objective observation that we do, but we are uh, participants in, in relationships mm-hmm. um, when we do anthropological research and the, the, one of the other phrases that people use for it is intersubjectivity mm-hmm. that I have my own and the people I'm working with have their own and that both of those together constitute the context for the sort of the ethnographic engagement. And if I don't understand myself, um, I'm not doing my job um, because that's part of um, what I'm observing. And um, that also sort of goes, you know, one of the um, scholars that, that I rely, I've relied heavily on over the years is Gregory Bateson. And um, Gregory Bateson, you know, one of the progenitors of cybernetics and, and his, the and systems thinking and, and his, his um, way of thinking was always also that if we, we need to understand our own role in this, this system as an observer and mm-hmm. understand the, the nature of our apparatus, so to speak, as, as observers and all of the influences on that, all the limitations, all of the subjectivities of it. Um, in order to really understand, to interpret the information we're seeing um, yeah. and the things that we're learning and the conversations we're having. He said, um, all knowledge is contextual because it's all uh, shared through relationships. Okay. So if that, yeah. 
I don't uh, understand the word cybernetics. Is that the word you used? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand that word very well, but it's not a word I would associate with the ideas that you just described. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I think that that's a common, you know, a lot of people, when they hear cybernetics, they, um, they've learned about cybernetics as like a precursor to systems thinking, just okay. something out of engineering, out of engineering or information right. theory um, about um, how information is transmitted and lost and, and, um, and feedbacks and interactions and, and whatnot. But, but cybernetics, um, really is a theory of sort of linking theories of evolution and theories of mind and learning. Wow. Okay. And how systems learn and how systems evolve um, and the roles of individuals in that and what, and really questioning what the, what the unit of analysis is in terms of change, whether it's evolution or learning, is it the individual or is it the species or is it a more collective um, person in their community and their environment? Um, Okay. So is there, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to so that, so cybernetics is sort of this larger, um, larger area that that um, that involves um, other things that you've probably heard about, like double and triple loop learning, mm-hmm. um, and really the the goal is just to it's all it's it's all applying the systems thinking mm-hmm. that the whole, the whole the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, but accepting the fact that we're in that system entirely, including how we think about it, including our minds and how we think and learn about it. Oh, right. So that's when it gets meta and, and then my brain starts breaking right. a little bit. It, me too. Me too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so that's why I stick to the, like the language of intersubjectivity and, okay. con- and that, and that knowledge is relational and contextual and, and you have to understand your own standpoint. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to start to t- talk about other people in other places um, because each piece of research is a, is an engagement that involves you and you, which mm-hmm. you're bringing a lot of things too, right? You're bringing all of these subjectivities and biases and, and those aren't yeah. necessarily bad. They're just features of right. where you are and the work you've done, but they're there. Yeah. But they're there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so can I ask you then how, okay. So I guess this is going to be a two parter. Um, so I'm aware that you, so you mentioned going into a more kind of engineering, I see in your website, you call it information technology path. Hmm. And then I saw that there are these two books that influenced you one called Ishmael, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce the other one very well. Um, a UPX worldview. Yes, that one. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm interested, Phil, in, in trying, in understanding how you got to those ideas. So was it, um, was it in part in those books? Was it, and, and so then you went on to University of Alaska Fairbanks to get your graduate degree, correct? Mm-hmm, that's right. And, that, yeah. and it was that in indigenous studies? Was that what the program was called or was it something else? The, the program, well, so I, I started off, um, I went to the University of Alaska Fairbanks in part to be able to have the opportunity to work with Oscar Cowigley, who was the author of UPEC Worldview. He was, Got he's, it. He was, he's passed away, but he was on faculty there. And I started in the Department of Anthropology um, at University of Alaska, and which which had a had a great history. Um, that program uh, had a lot of really great archaeologists and anthropologists go through it. And um, I did my master's in that program, and um, connected connected very well with with a mentor, Craig Gerlach, who I stayed on to do my PhD with. Um, but Craig um, had moved into the newer program there called the Center for Cross Cultural Studies. And um, I opted to do my PhD in that program as well. And they had just launched a, a PhD um, in Indigenous Studies. 
Got it. And um, yeah, so the um, it was the Center of Cross-Cultural Studies. And at the time, the National Science Foundation was doing um, their IGERT program. Do you remember IGERT, the graduate, mm-hmm. Integrative Graduate Research and tra- Traineeship? Um, there was one of those at University of Alaska called the Resilience and Adaptation Program. So, so the programs, I, I was at this sort of weird overlay of programs that I did my, my okay. degree in. And so how can you talk to me a bit about um, either one or both of those books and how they really influenced you and yeah, I guess, changed sh- the path you were on? I, I, yes, for sure. You know, so when I, I mentioned that I, out of high school, I went into an engineering school and that wasn't the right path. And I, uh, cause I was, you know, I went there cause I was good at computers and it had been suggested um, that I go into this program and um, Clarkson university it was um, but it wasn't fulfilling. And so I left college and um, just worked in computers for a while. And I got really successful um, doing that. I ended up going down to Florida and um, working first in telecom um, and then um, healthcare. Okay. And, and I was being very, I was, I was, I was having quite a bit of success in a traditional sense, um, a good paycheck, good benefits, that kind of stuff, but I wasn't enjoying myself. And increasingly, I was increasingly dissatisfied with the role that technology was playing and contributing to society. And it was worst, it turned out, in the healthcare um, industry because the priority in that industry in the United States anyway is, is always billing first. And so whenever there was an opportunity working at this organization to develop something innovative around patient care, um, our time always got pulled away from patient care to billing. And that just, so over time, my confidence in this career path and in the industry was eroding and I was, I was very dissatisfied. Um, and so I did sort of happen to be handed um, by a friend of mine, Juan Perez, um, a copy of Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. And for some I don't even remember why. For some reason, I had also come across and purchased um, a UPIC worldview on Amazon. Um, And I guess it was on Amazon back then. And I was sort of reading them both simultaneously. And both of them really impacted me in terms of thinking about the cultural assumptions we have about humanity, human nature, progress, and the nature of sustainability challenges. And um, they were both quite impactful probably more so together um, Mm. that I was sort of reading them simultaneously. Um, And so I decided um, after reading those books, I decided I was going to go back to graduate school. Um, And I did a a sort of in the interim, I did a field um, school at a, um, an archeological dig in Guatemala to see if, if what I wanted to do was in the past, Mm -hmm. understanding sort of past um, circumstances around sustainability and collapse and all of that. Um, and, and it was, it was an amazing experience, but I was far more intrigued by the opportunity to contribute to the challenges that people living there now are facing. Right. You know, one of the things I remember reading, um, collapse by Jared diamond and, you know, there's all of this about, you know, the collapse of the Maya civilization and he, what he leaves out is the most interesting part is what happened next because, you know, all the Maya weren't taken up by spaceships and they didn't disappear, right? They're still the world's largest indigenous group. And, um, I, you know, I just, I didn't realize until going there that, um, that I knew so little about the world's indigenous peoples that, Mm -hmm. um, that they were still here and, and in many cases, strong resurgent and so forth. And, um, so I looked at programs that ended up going because of the opportunity to, to work with Oscar, um, to the university of Alaska. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so what did you do for your dissertation work? 
So for my for both my master's and PhD theses, I worked on uh, sort of the confluence of climate change impacts on subsistence and country food systems in rural Alaska. So the ways that climate change was impacting uh, fish populations, moose populations, seasonality, um, in you know sort of distribution and abundance, and people's ability to adapt and respond. So how were things like hunting and fishing seasons uh, helping? or hindering people's ability to respond to variability and change? Uh, did they have the ability to be out on the land and continue to develop and adapt their, their local ecological knowledge uh, and so forth? Mm. And so you've essentially, I mean, my impression is that you've kept up that type of research program empirically, is that correct? Since getting yeah, your it, PhD? The, yeah, there's been some twists and turns for sure. Um, you know, the what started off as principally research with indigenous communities on impacts of climate change and food. Um, so I, I sort of turned more directly into fisheries for a while, fisheries mm-hmm. all, of all different types, um, commercial fisheries in Alaska. Um, and from there, um, got a developed a really interesting, or a strong interest in conflict as okay. a part of um, conflict over natural resources and how people with diverse um, values for and needs for shared resources can either be in conflict or come to coexist um, while using those shared resources. And because there's a lot of conflict over fisheries in Alaska, there's a lot of conflict over a lot of things in Alaska. Sure. Um, Okay. And, and so, but mostly, you know, the research has continued to be somewhere in that area of food, food systems, sustainability, fisheries, uh, wild foods, um, and, and still conflict. I'm still doing conflict work. I actually have con- research on conflict over water and agriculture in, in the prairie region of Canada. Um, okay. That's ongoing right now. Um, so it's a bit of a diverse mix, but all of it does sort of boil down to this linkage between food, sustainability, um, and the, sort of the human ecology of, of those linkages and conflict. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so you mentioned, Phil, that this connection that you had with, with Maine, this feels like a very personal connection. Um, having a sense of place and, and being attached to different places has, has been a very strong motivating feature for myself. Um, I find it difficult to kind of be in a place personally or professionally if I don't have a sense of attachment to it in one way or another. And, and I think the, the idea of a place there's both the actual environment, there's the environment itself, but there's the people there. Mm-hmm. And I think those are, it's, it's, you can't really divorce them in terms of your emotional reaction to them, at least for me, I can't. I mean, so in your, in your work that you've just been describing, have you developed a similar, um, has place also been, been important? Have you developed an attachment to one place or another as you've been working in different places? Well, you know, one of the, uh, I've always valued you know being able to do the work that i do in the place where i am mm-hmm. as opposed to being somebody who say lives in alaska but does research in southeast asia or where you know um, which i do um but but the opportunity you know something about being able to do that practice of research in the place where i'm living has always been really meaningful to me um and so i think through that i've I've developed, I've, had, I've been able to develop really good relationships with people. Um, you know, I lived in Alaska for 10 years, you know, longer than I wasn't just there for, um, 
for my graduate work. I lived there, I continued to live and work there afterwards. And I had, um, I developed some really amazing relationships with some people in different parts of rural Alaska that sort of started around research and then just became friendships and then became, you know, friendship um, and research. Um, right. And, and that was really important. Um, and it, it is absolutely, it's, it's inextricable from the places, right? You know, when I think of, um, I had a really good friend named Patrick Smith, who was, when I was doing my master's degree, the chief of uh, the community of Minto. And, you know, when I think about the stories, um, the time I spent with Patrick, um, you know, it, it's always very specific to certain places that we went out uh, mm. walking or when we, when we took his boat out. Um, and yeah, those are, those are really linked for sure. And, and uh, I actually, that's, um, I explore that connection um, earlier. We mentioned um, this book that I have coming out. Um, mm. There's a, it's it, that there's a mix in that book of, of very personal vignettes about experiences in very specific places with people like Patrick and then um, sort of linking, linking those with some of the more conceptual uh, aspects of sustainability and environmental challenges and, and what. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so we can talk a bit about that book now. Um, so it's, it's coming out, it's called finding our niche. And then I see the subtitle is towards a restorative human ecology. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned the idea of human ecology. Um, could you could you tell folks what? Well, first of all, what what you understand human ecology to mean, and what is restorative human ecology? Sure. So, I human ecology. I would describe human ecology as a generally social science field. Possibly, depending on who you asked, you know, you, you can't ever get two anthropologists to agree on anything when mm-hmm. it comes to the discipline. But I would consider it adjacent to or a subfield of cultural anthropology. Got it. Um, and you know, as in human ecology, we we use um, the we look at the relationships between people and their environment and how people make livelihoods and make meaning through those relationships. And we often apply concepts or metaphors from ecology, um, not in a sort of deterministic way, but instead of as heuristics and metaphors for understanding relationships and um, between people in the environment. Um, you know, it's a broad, other people would define it differently. That's how I think about human ecology. It's related to, it's about relationships between people and people and people in the environment and mm-hmm. the nexus of those. Um, so, so it was earlier when you said you identify as an anthropologist, I, I sort of inwardly chuckled because sometimes I say anthropologist, sometimes I say human ecologist and I can never determine which is the one I prefer. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Though I, I consider them to, you know, if I had to draw a Venn diagram, it would, you know, I, I would put human ecology inside anthropology. Um, in any case, the book finding our niche is, is sort of in a nutshell, my, you know, it has the character of what I would describe, what I just described. It's about a handful of metaphors um, for thinking about people's relationships with the environment, particularly generally through their food, um, but more so as a patterns of species like community ecology, um, concepts like keystone species and ecosystem engineering and um, novel ecosystems and um, disturbance regimes and so forth just but but as metaphors um but also you know sort of a discussion of of relationships and personal story and identity the the human cultural um aspects of that which is why um things like 
settler colonialism and is such a big theme in, in the book at the same time as ecological concepts. Um, but uh, the, the, the idea there toward a restorative human ecology, which was your question, I realize I'm circling around it, is that, you know, I, one of the things that characterizes all the environment, many of the environmental challenges we face right now is um, something of a zero-sum game where we've set ourselves up as, as a species who, if we either we benefit or the environment does, and that mm-hmm. conservation needs to some with, come with some level of asceticism or, or austerity. Um, and that, you know, human thriving, I think back to like Paul Ehrlich's famous I equals P times A times T, Mm-hmm. Um, formula, right? Um, impact is a function of affluence. Um, and, you know, we're, you know one of the, this is one of the main messages of Ishmael is that that is a cultural narrative, that, that humans are necessarily bad for the environment, is right. a cultural na- narrative, is a myth. Um, that's central to concepts like tragedy, the commons, and you know this too well, right? That yep. um, having, having worked with, with Lynn Ostrom. Um, and so, you know, that message is, is central to Ishmael. And, and in my own work, it's become sort of a, a central sort of driving force is to find and learn about cases where people are thriving and they're by, you know, sort of in partnership with thriving ecosystems, win-win scenarios. And, and when I started looking for them, I, you know, they were few and far between, but the more I started to look, it's like finding four-leaf clover. The more you start to look for them, the more, you find, more of them you find in there. Hmm. And so the book, Finding Our Niche, is about these examples and metaphors for how these examples work of win-win solutions, where the relationship between people and the environment is restorative, not mm. impact, not negative. It's a positive, not a negative one. Yeah, I mean, that's terrific, Phil. I feel like um, a common criticism in my department in environmental studies is that we focus a lot on negative cases or failures, and there's not very many stories of success. Right. Like we're, Hey, these folks are trying this stuff and it's actually working. And I feel like I agree with you that I think a, a common response to that and the enterprise of looking for them would be like, well, there's just, just, just probably just not that many. <laughs> um, but of course that, that assumption can then prevent us from looking for them in the first place, I suppose. Exactly. Right. You know, they, the, the old, the sort of the axiom, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. Yeah. Um, the, um, yeah, and so I did, you know, so I've been, and I've, I've encountered some really, really amazing people doing amazing things um, with, you know, and meeting needs for food. Um, and I'm talking about, what, you know, sort of regenerative cattle ranching in Ireland, um, where mm. people are moving cattle seasonally in the Burren region of Ireland in a way that promotes biodiversity, is improving ecosystem health along a whole series of indicators there. Um, clam gardening um, by indigenous people in um, the Pacific Northwest area um, from northern Washington up through the panhandle, panhandle of Alaska. There's ancient shellfish mariculture that in, increasingly is being understood and, and, and practiced again, um, where building these clam gardens um, is improving um, biodiversity on the beach while also improving, you know, you know, producing more larger clams. And so, you know, win-win scenarios. And um, they are, um, to a critic, they at first come across, they may come across as anecdotal, but, but they're rich with information about what's possible. And I really then, like that way of putting it. Yeah. You know, and then when you couple that to all of the great 
archaeology that we have about past successes, you know, whether it's the, the forest work on the forest gardens in the Amazon and the more we know now about how, you know, this thing that we've been calling pristine in our culture for, you know, meaning pristine, meaning not having humans in it, uh, has actually, was actually peopled by, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands or more of people who had an impact on mm. the way the Amazon looked, uh, looked pre-contact and looks today. Um, yeah, so that's that's sort of the the whole sort of mission of the book is to share some of these stories and draw the metaphors from them that that um, that I think are relevant to first sort of recognizing possibility. Um, you know, we're we're limiting our options if we're convinced we're, that the only way to create a sustainable world is by limiting impact, as right. opposed to finding ways to have positive sort of mutualistic beneficial impacts. Right? Yeah, I mean, part of what you're talking about, Phil, reminds me of um, there's this book I. I read a while ago called cradle to cradle, which is essentially about getting beyond recycling to actually upcycling and comes out of this discipline of industrial ecology that kind of critiques a lot of environmental governance is trying to find ways of being less bad. Mm -hmm. All right. So like, let's, let's pollute a little bit less, but otherwise the factories stay open, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. It's not transformative in any way. It's just, um, you know, the, or let's, you know, let's, or let, less bad or let's just become really efficient at it. So, right. you know, the, so the, the, the very sort of the Uber land sparing um, philosophy, say of eco-modernism, you know, let's just, let's get super good with our technology and really efficient with our urban centers. And so then we can leave nature to be itself. Right. And it's a, you know, it's a false separation. It's, it's kind of like a eco-cultural apartheid, right? That this idea of, you know, just will be us and everything else can be it. And right. that, that'll be great until we need a little bit more and then until we need a little bit more and until we need a little bit more. We'll right? just have to get more and more efficient. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you get, so you get what I'm saying is, yeah. um, and you know, no, but that's a, that's a modern, very modernist vision. It's not an indigenous vision. It's not the vision mm. that I hope for, for the world. Um, yeah. So a couple of follow-up questions about the book. So how did you collect the data for these? Was there fieldwork involved or did you do interviews in some ways or how did you do the case studies? I approached, I approached this book as a sort of a a a blend of popular science and a memoir. Okay. So the, the places I'm talking about, I was often there to do research. Okay. Um, Right. But I learned about the cases while I was there. Um, I learned about how they worked. I learned about the ecology and I got to know people. And I also learned about myself in each of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, you know, while, you know, so like, you know, when I was in um, Sonora in Mexico, um, uh, working with uh, an, an organization that does ecosystem restoration down there as a part of an internship. And, and the Cienega de Santa Clara is one of the places I talk about in the book. And um, so that wasn't me doing the social science research there. Um, but that was sort of just a, a, a place that I experienced and learned a little bit about um, environmental challenges and how people are, are approaching them. Um, and some of them were more sort of you know, sort of oriented around research, for instance, the work I was doing, you know, research in with folks out in the clam gardens in BC, uh, a lot of the book does discuss um, a, a number of my research experiences in Alaska. Okay. Um, Have you heard of this project called the seeds of the good Anthropocene? It's run by yeah. some resilience alliance folks. Cause this reminds me of that. I mean, I could see this work engaging well with that project. 
Yeah, I think so. And and I know a couple of the people in that network. I collaborate um, on a on a grant with Elena Bennett at McGill, okay. who's part of the Seeds Group. Um, yeah, I I think we share I share a you know a bit of an ethos with them about so let's look at these good let's look for these and learn from these good um, outcomes these yeah these great cases um, you know for me the the whole idea, the, the purpose of the book was to say, first to say, you know, instead of treating ourselves like we really don't belong on this planet, um, right, because we have to control ourselves, otherwise we're going to eat ourselves to death. Um, let's, let's try to reframe the, the narrative around belonging again. So what does that mean? That means finding our niche and finding our way to fit in and to belong and to contribute. Um, and that's going to look different from place to place to place. And that's one of the things I like about that seeds project is it's, it's explicitly place based. Right. Uh, but they, um, but, and they also, uh, you know, in that, um, th- there's always a challenge to do in the place space, um, to telling place based stories that they will be critiqued as not being scalable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I've always, I've, I've always bristled at that, and, and it, but it took me a while to figure out why. And I, th- and I think it's because that, that's a very sort of industrial critique, right? That, that solutions need to be right. scalable or portable in, a, in an actual sort of mechan- mechanistic way, right? Replicate it, replicate right. it, replicate it. And How do we get economies po- of scale? Exactly. And so, um, but, but I think I, I've said this um, once already in this conversation was that, um, just because they're different doesn't mean there's not something that you can learn and transfer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I've heard this before. I, I have, I have friends who study kind of the diffusion of con- conservation strategies and that's something mm-hmm. that they struggle with is like, how do we actually get this to be adopted and scaled, et cetera. Yeah. And maybe it's kind of asking the wrong question because what's going to happen somewhere else is going to need to be a little bit different yeah. than what's been figured out here. Um, so, okay. What, what, um, Two final questions that occur to me about the book is, so it, it hasn't come out yet. Um, so when is it coming out? It's coming out on October 15th. It just opened up for pre-order. Okay. Um, everywhere, essentially. Books are sold. Very yeah. cool. And yeah. what is your um, most target audience? Are you, are you thinking this is going to be used by professors in classrooms? I mean, I, I know I'm excited to read it. I, I could see it being... Um, I mean, I think case studies are very powerful as you were kind of talking mm-hmm. about, right? And I think students really respond strongly to them. So is this, is this an edu- a book for education? Is it a popular book or, or are you thinking it in that way? Well, you know, I sought out, I would love to see it be used in classrooms for sure. Um, and, you know, wh- my approach to classes is, to, when I teach classes is always a liberal arts approach. I, I always try to incorporate things, uh, you know, pop, popular writing, poetry, film, music, whatever, whatever we, makes sense to, right, to, to, to approach the subject from a liberal arts perspective. And so um, I would love to see it used um, in classrooms, but it wouldn't, I don't know that it would be like, a, it would be more like using something by Wes Jackson or Wendell Berry than it would. And <laughs> it's not, I'm sure it's not nearly as well written as anything from either of them, but um, I just, you know, if you get my drift, then it would be using a, you know, a, a, not a textbook, but, but a technical book, like a, you know, it's, it's also not Les Brown's planet B, um, right. That's a different style of book or even, even collapse is a different style of book to some extent, because this one is personal. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is so when I when I was looking to publish it, that's why I, I sought out a trade press, not a um, not a, not a university press, um, because I I wanted to be sure that yes, well, I would love to see it used in classrooms. I I also I want to see I would like to have a more general audience be exposed to it because I think that there's um, over the years I've written bits and pieces of this in little essays that have always been really well received by popular audiences, okay. and and so I think that there's a um, I think that people out there want some good news and some alternative ways of thinking about this challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people, and they want to feel connected to it. And so I, I appreciate this idea that this is also a personal aspect to this. Um, okay. So another question has occurred to me, Phil, that I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about is you've um, talked about indigenous people. There's this concept of indigeneity and it reminds me of, a discourse in my field of the commons where community-based natural resource management is a big thing. And in part, CBNRM was seen, right, and, and I'm sure you know this, right, as a response to the panaceas of markets, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there was this pushback to say, hey, communities can't be the new panacea. They're heterogeneous. If we just evolve things to communities, and this is not just an argument, there's, it's happened, Local elites will capture the benefits. Um, we will often systematically ignore um, historically disenfranchised folks in communities. Um, we might um, you know, have a grazing association that helps livestock owners, but if women don't own livestock, they're not going to be helped. Right. So, and, so we're, and, and, and behind that is this idea of questioning the actual idea of a community. Is it, can we talk about it or is it too heterogeneous internally? And so this, I kind of have the same question about indigeneity and indigenous communities is how there must be variation across indigenous groups. Oh, tremendous. So how do we engage with that variation? I mean, I haven't studied indigenous groups, but how does an indigenous scholar or one who's in, engaged in that work um, engage with that variation? Right. Well, it's working with, you know, I've had the great, uh, honor of working with um, a handful of indigenous communities over the years and it it's always it has to be approached not as research but as a relationship because there's so much diversity not in in terms of in terms of value but also in terms of priorities and needs and concerns um, diversities of norms diversities of the, the whole you know tremendous cultural diversity right. and and so the relationships are really what matters and then developing a relationship around and, you know, and sort of a, a bit of a reciprocity, you know, to say, you know, I'm here and I'm keen to get to know you. And these are the resources that I have at my disposal because of my unique and privileged position at a, at a university. Um, and, you know, obviously I do research. I'm a, you know, there are these things that I try to do. I try to publish, I try to contribute to scientific knowledge around these issues. Um, but you, you develop that, that working relationship and try to come to uh, conversations about questions that you can answer together um, and mm-hmm. research that can be empowering. You know, I, I, um, we have a, there's, a, there's a lot of well-developed protocol in Canada for doing research with Indigenous communities around um, truth and reconciliation and um, about about um, ensuring equity and diverse, um, diversity and also free prior and informed consent. And so 
um, it's been a great place to sort of learn how to be continuously learn how to be a better collaborator with indigenous communities. Um, and it's, but it's, it's, it's a really amazing um, job to have at the same time. Right. Mm. Um, so, you know, to, I think to your question, I mean, you know, history matters so much in from place to place. Right. And, and, all of these environmental issues that I'm looking at in, in Canada, for example, are all playing out on, on land that is either in some cases covered by treaty in some cases not, um, you know, it, it's, it's not inaccurate to say it's all stolen land. Um, you know, there's a lot of politics around um, indigenous land rights and land claims and in, in the U S and Canada. But, and so that's why the relationship, I guess, is so important because there's yeah. just so much that as a researcher going, you're not ever going to know. And so d- developing, you know, and it's, you know, I don't, don't want to come across as um, sort of boilerplate, but developing the, rela- the research th- through developing relationships is what, is what makes that work possible. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's been reinforced to me in the different places I've gone. It's just you can't do anything without, like the relationships and the process by which you build them is you're lost without that. Yeah. I mean, so Phil, you mentioned um, your position at a university. And, and so we haven't actually talked about your current position yet. Um, so I understand that you're at the University of Guelph in Canada. It's in Ontario, Western Ontario. Southern Ontario. Southern Ontario. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I grew up at, in Rochester. Um, mm-hmm. So I actually, I think Guelph is not that far from Rochester. You kind of bop past Niagara Falls and you keep going. Exactly. Yeah, it would, it would probably take five hours maybe so that sounds about Guelph, right. yeah. yeah so how far yeah. is that from toronto is that like a three-hour drive or something depends on traffic uh, you know so okay. getting to the air getting to the airport on a good day takes an hour getting into downtown toronto um could take three okay okay so that's okay and so how long have you been at the university of guelph i came to university of guelph in 2018 okay um yeah a couple of years before that i was at university of saskatchewan okay um, how did that transition go for you? Are you in the geography department there or a different one? I'm in geography. So it's, it was good. You know, when I, I was in the school of environment and sustainability at the university of Saskatchewan and I, and I really did not have any reason to go anywhere. It was a fantastic place, great collaborators, great colleagues and good neighbors, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the university of Guelph, um, um, through a, a, a major gift from the Errol family foundation started the Errol food Institute. And part of the Arrow Food Institute was to create these three research chairs. And um, the one that I hold is in food policy and society. And okay. the, um, the mandate to come here and work on essentially all of the kinds of, you know, specifically the kinds of research that I do, the relations between sustainability, food, policy, environment, um, it was just a really fantastic opportunity and, and one to work with some really neat people. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I'm closer to where I grew up, you know, now being in Southern Ontario, I, the, the trees look more familiar. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the birds look more, you know, the, the insects yeah. are more familiar. I recognize the snakes, you know, so that, that's kind of nice that, you know, downtown Guelph kind of feels like a small downtown city you'd get in new hampshire or mass so um so that it was a nice transition that was a hard one to leave saskatchewan um okay well we've been already talking for a while and i I do want to get to this um this other paper that we had um corresponded about 
Oh yeah, thresholds. The thresholds, yeah. So you mentioned, um, so you mentioned sustainability earlier on in this interview, and I saw that you writing about it a little bit on your website, and also relating to another concept that's very popular now, resilience, mm-hmm. which has really taken off. I mean, there's there's major funding now behind the idea of resilience. Yeah. Um, in that in that piece, you compare kind of sustainability and resilience a bit. It sounds like the idea of sustainability remains important for you. It does. Okay. Yeah. It Could really you say does. why? Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons that people sort of, you know, sustainability, you know, gained a lot of traction, you know, in the eighties and nineties through UN reports and whatnot. And, um, and one of the challenges that it had was that people um, were defining it in different ways and in a culture where, you know, built on sort of very industrial values, that was a problem. Um, but for sustainability is a fundamentally different paradigm, I think, than the modern way that we live in the world. It's not. Um, and, and I think that, so a challenge that people have had in grappling with sustainability is coming to terms with thinking from the sustainability paradigm where diversity of definitions of a concept are okay. Um, and that's an example of a threshold concept. It's a, it, and that's what the paper is about threshold concepts and sustainability. Um, so the, if you accept the notion that sustainability is not just a, um, different way of calculating economics or different way of calculating sort of, you know, how much you can catch in the fisheries, but if you accept that it's a fundamentally different cultural paradigm for understanding our relationships with the natural world and with each other, then things are going to take on different meanings because paradigms have discontinuities between them, right? Any sort of informational paradigm has a, you know, has different definitions for things, different sets of values, different and spaces between those things. And, and as in teaching sustainability, before I even realized this, you know, it, over the years teaching sustainability, I encountered all of these good, really good examples of concepts that um, once you got through them, you were a little bit more of a sort of a natural sustainability thinker. Um, the most obvious one is systems thinking. Mm-hmm. Once you learn to think about things in systems, there's no going back, right? Right. But and, but it's not just sort of a a way of seeing the world. It also changes some assumptions about it, right? You know, systems thinking brings in concepts like emergence and um, and sort of synergistic relationships that change how we see the world from just being a series of added additive relationships to much more complex outcomes, right? And is um, that, sorry, Phil, is that where the idea, the, the name threshold comes from? Is that you're essentially crossing a threshold by understanding this and you can't kind of go back? Yes. And, and so from the field of education, environmental education, I think originally um, the concept of threshold concepts and came to be and, and, Threshold concepts can be identified for learning any number of different things. Um, being an anthropologist, for example, um, a threshold concept in anthropology is cultural relativism. Mm-hmm. It changes the way I, as a scholar, think about rationality than an economist may, right? In a fundamental way. Pretty um, fundamental, yeah. Right. And so that's a threshold concept. And once you start to think from that perspective, the, the doors are usually one way. But right. it's not, but learning them is, is a process. And you often, you know, um, because they challenge the, your current way of thinking. Um, and so in sustainability, for example, another really good example is, is relates to the conversation we had earlier about human nature and assumptions like the tragedy of the commons, mm-hmm. um, right? The idea that um, we will, short of a strong government or market hand, we will act in a way that um, degrades the environment. Um, 
Um, and when that's the way you see the world, you look to solutions like community-based natural resource management and you say, well, that's, that's absurd, right? Because, um, because that's fundamentally contradictory to the way you, you see the world. You need to use markets, you need to use strong government. Um, yeah, incentives, et cetera. Incentives and, and, and so forth. And, and again, as you know, a ton of research has been shown that, um, that shows there's all these other different ways of successfully and sustainably interacting with the natural world. And so, um, and also a, a whole bunch of sort of looking under the cover at, at, the, at the person that Garrett Hardin was um, mm. in terms of his values about diversity and race. But um, in any case, to get to the idea of the threshold concepts, once you start to see the world, once you walk through that th- threshold, now you see things differently usually yeah. changes the relationships between things. And, and so over the years, I realized teaching sustainability that there are a handful of these concepts that students struggle with. Many of them are skeptical of at first or they think they're silly or naive, but it, as they work with them, uh, it changes the way uh, that they think about sustainability. Okay. I mean, so uh, two next questions. And one is one of my favorite parts of this paper published in Facets, I believe is the name of the journal, um, just this year, it looks like. So um, this idea of multiple ways of knowing and you have this statement there that this idea rejects binary right or wrong propositions about the nature of the world and instead proposes the existence of multiple levels of reality. I think that's profound. I think that, you know, you could read that sentence and just kind of keep on going. But I think that that the challenge of assuming that in any kind of discussion, you know, there's only so much truth to be divvied out. And so it's kind of a zero sum game for the truth, right? And so if you and I are arguing, the more right you are, the more wrong I am. It's as if we're on opposite ends of a scale, whatever metaphor you want to choose, right? I think that happens all the time. Yeah, look everywhere around us right now, right? Look on social media. That zero sum game is everywhere. It's everywhere. And, you know, I find myself in my life, I'll think back to many times, and this is not something I know you ever grew out of. It's like if you get angry in a conversation, suddenly you can slide into this, no, there's going to be one right way. And part of my brain wants it to be my way, of course. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, this, yeah. this, this is a deep behavioral challenge here, I think. Mm. And so I really loved that reflection because I think we need to move in that direction. I think we need to have much more tolerance for multiple perspectives because yeah. um, there's some really hard emotional intellectual labor to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I was at, I was in Alaska at a pretty, um, I think a pretty active time when um, the conversation around bringing multiple ways of knowing and traditional ecological knowledge into natural resource management was, it was really become, it was, everybody was all of a sudden saying this was essential and we were realizing the, the, the value of doing so. And, and so I happened to be, you know, happened to be able to observe a number of different types of groups, you know, science, scientists, state-based you know, managers working for the, for state agencies trying to grapple with, and people in indigenous communities all trying to grapple with this and with doing so. And the challenge always often became somebody would, would get to a point where they'd say, well, one of us has to be right. Boom, right. There you are. And and then I encountered the, the, some, some of the things written on the original writings on transdisciplinary by um, um, Bezarab, I'm going to butcher his name, Nicholas Q, um, mm-hmm. where he talked about the missing third and this idea that if, there's, if, if two different knowledge systems are contradicting 
each other, but internally or consider themselves correct, it's less likely that there's one thing that's right or wrong. It's more likely there's something you don't know that makes them both be able to be right. Mm. So we called it the missing third or the missing middle. And, and, you know, and, and then later talking about thresholds called those um, discontinuities between knowledge systems that there's, we just don't know why we, why they, these, both of these realities actually can coexist. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I've started to say like, Hey, I think we can both be right. Yeah. Like, I think that's a space we can get to. Uh, it's, it's just felt very empowering to be honest, to try to articulate that idea. Yeah. And, 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 and it builds the kind of relationship that you need to solve complex problems and respond to tremendous uncertainty, like we're going to have with climate change. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's a part of me that would love to go into each one of these. You have these five different threshold concepts. We've talked about one or multiple ways of knowing you've talked about complexity a bit. There's a question I want to make sure to also ask, which is based on the city of a threshold, based on this concept, this, what you mentioned several times is the irreversibility of the learning process here. Hmm. So once you kind of go into this, you can't not see, you can't not be affected by that when you're looking at the world. Yeah. You know, um, is that a good thing? Right? Because I think I'm reminded <laughs> of um, this idea of the Zen mind, beginner's mind, the, the importance of kind of coming at things with without uh your own you know i could mm -hmm. use the you know biases you know intellectual biases and because um and i feel like people problematize this dynamic with respect to other people's disciplines like oh if you could only unlearn this, this the dogma of rationality and see things my way as a cultural relativist you'd be better off right yeah. And there, I kind of want them to be able to go back, uh, reverse past the threshold, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think about, have you thought about that? I mean, is it, is it always good that, that we can't unlearn some of these things? I think, I think that, you're, that you're making a really fantastic point. I think that there's, I think the multiple ways of knowing threshold concept inoculates a little bit against that kind of sort of confirmation bias. Mm. Um, because you're going in saying, I'm going to not replace my way of my new way of seeing the world, my old way with the new one. Right. I'm moving into a new way of seeing the world that validates the old one also. Well done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good response to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something I struggle with, right? Like the, the challenge of tunnel vision of that comes with specialization. It's just, it's an endless challenge and it's a challenge actually also it relates to another one of these social concepts, collaborative institutions. It's a mm -hmm. the, the tunnel vision really poses a real challenge to collaboration. Because if I know one thing and you know another, it's going to be harder for us to talk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, a, you know, that's going to be a long work in progress because I think, you know, one of the real challenges to working with multiple ways of knowing and, and, and collaboration is, um, is the model that, that you have for consensus or for, for action rather, whether it's like consent based or consensus based or, and, you know, modern societies, you know, the government of Canada, the U.S. government, they don't, they, nobody wants to wait sometimes for the amount of time it takes to actually get to consensus. Mm -hmm. um, it's a slow process, right? Um, but uh, yeah, the, if we can help people to see past the, the, the binaries, um, yeah, uh, you know that, that's a real question. How do we do that? And that's that's well put. I yeah. agree that that's the challenge. Um, 
Okay, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but there were two other concepts I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on. Sure. One I've already mentioned, which is resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just put it briefly. Why isn't resilience in this article as a threshold concept? That's a good question. So, you know, I've, I've worked for a long time with the concept of resilience. I think I mentioned earlier that, that um, one of the programs my dissertation was at, where my PhD work was in was in the resilience and adaptation program, which was part of the resilience Alliance. Um, And um, you know, resilience is a, it's an important concept, no doubt. Um, You know, understanding how systems bounce back. And, you know, I think that um, I don't know that it's a threshold concept. Um, I, you know, I've always looked at resilience as sort of a very, in a very ecological manner and seen the value in that this you know that there's um, there are multiple stable states you're in one you can get pushed eventually reach the threshold and you cross it or you bounce back and how quickly do you bounce back or you know and, and so forth um, the the way that the resilience concept sort of evolved into a what I would I would argue what became a social movement in science um, totally that, agree. that packaged lots of different concepts together Yep. And you know, sort of seeking out a grand theory of adaptive change, I think, is um, what what they were doing, you know, with resilience, adaptation, transformation, and and the notion of, you know, multiple levels, you know, of adaptive change in panarchy. Um, the, all of those are, I think, part and parcel to a particular approach to looking at complex systems. Um, but a real challenge with resilience has been its ability to um, sort of pick up the political, ecological, and ethical and social justice dimensions. Um, you know, it's great to be resilient, but, you know, it's great if you're resilient to being punched in the face. It's great that your face heals, but it does nothing about the fact that you just got punched in the face, right? Right. Um, right. You can be really resilient, but that doesn't mean you don't undergo harm. Hmm. And and so a lot of, there's been a lot of good work sort of unpacking packing those, but... Um, I think that building resilient systems is part and parcel absolutely to building sustainable ones. Um, but when I put this article together, I had to pick five that I felt in my experience working with students were the strongest sort of conceptual tent poles mm-hmm. for that paradigm as I currently understand it, which I, you know, I have to admit is um, it's only partial. Right. Um, and so f- one of those, you know, com- to, between the two, complexity, I thought was more fundamental okay. uh, than a particular system dynamics within complex systems. Yeah, I mean, I th- one of the things I feel like I heard, Phil, is, is something that's been discussed within the commons field as well, is that there's an underappreciation for the importance of history and power. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've struggled with in the commons field and the institutional economics field. When we're trying to figure out which institutions work well, where and when, there, you know, historically, we haven't addressed those concepts very well, you know. Right, right. Um, yeah, the whole history of, of, of the field of development, right, in the second yep. half of the 20th century was, was riddled with, with sort of the um, over-innovation and, um, you know, people coming in with developers' values and implementing things that didn't work. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well we could keep on talking for five more hours about all these things. I'd love to make sure to ask you at least this final question, which is, you know, so what next, like, what do you, well, what are, you know, what are the main things you're working on now and, and where do you want to head in the future? Basically. 
you know, that's a, that's a question that I imagine everybody um, in, or many people in our positions right now during this crazy time are, are questioning, right? Or yeah. asking, what, am I going to keep doing this for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Um, you know, right now in the short term, what's next is, I mean, I only just found out yesterday that it was time to start promoting finding our niche. And so I think a lot of my emotional energy is going to be going into that. Um, sure, fair enough. I had, in, until I, in, up until that point, I had started a, a, another book, um, um, motivated in part by the, the conversation we just had about um, sort of um, multiple ways of knowing and, um, you know, how many, how many people are in conflict in, with one another in the way of world. Um, that's a book that, that I'm, I'm going to be working on um, that focuses, again, I think a little bit on systems dynamics and, and um, how we change the world or why a, why a radically changed world might be closer than we think. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I, I do really hope to be able to get to work on that. Uh, and I also have a tremendous lab of, of graduate students that I, I have the, the pleasure of working with at University of Guelph who are working on everything from uh, indigenous-led conservation to um, uh, food sovereignty in Ecuador. Um, really, really um, tremendous group of, of people that, that I'm enjoying. Oh, and, and, and conflict over water and agriculture in the prairies. And so, um, so we've got great research that, that I, that I get to continue to enjoy. So long, you know, for the, for the time being, um, there's lots of research to be done. Um, some really good folks that I'm working with, but, um, I want to, I'm really interested in this question of, you know, I think a lot of people look at what happened in the last few years in American politics, but also worldwide and wondered, um, boy, I thought we were further along than we were, you know, in terms of advancing a variety of social goals. Um, um, Yeah. And, and that, you know, sort of coupled with issues like climate change and biodiversity loss and whatnot. And, and so I think that, um, that's activated and mobilized people, but it's also, um, I think it's also frustrated and maybe had caused some people to, to disengage. And I think that, um, you know, you know, sort of, I don't want to tip the hand of, of the book too much, but when, when major changes happen, when major thresholds are crossed, um, systems often get really erratic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm really pr- personally interested in how, cha- you know, and how major changes happen. That's why I wrote the thresholds paper. I'm really interested in diffusion of innovation and how we pass, you know, how we make regime change, um, things like resilience. Um, and I just, I look at the world around me, around us. And I think, I think that we might be on the verge of something. And if we approach the world as if we're on the verge of something, how does that change the way we engage and act? How does that change our activism? How does that change our scholarship? How does it change um, everything about how we're living or does it? Um, that's the next project for me is answering those questions. Those are quite some questions, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, all right. Did you want to mention also the, the Coastal Routes project? Sure. Yeah. So the largest project at my lab right now is Coastal Roots, which is a collaboration of scholars working around um, mostly Canada, but also international, Alaska, and some folks working in Scandinavia who are working in coastal communities to understand how people are responding to change in the most general sense um, with goals of food security, sustainability, and and so forth. Um, we have lots of different, um, you know, we focus on storytelling 
and most recently with COVID-19, the focus there has been uh, helping people tell stories about how fisheries are being impacted. Mm. Uh, Fisheries at all various different scales are being impacted by COVID-19. And um, as you know, we have a podcast, um, Social Fish Distancing, that we produce every other week where we hear from from fisher folk from mostly around North America. Um, we do have a, a, a Latin American episode coming up soon. Oh, um, fantastic. Yeah, it'll probably be in a couple of weeks because we have a few in the queue. But, um, but that's been a real joy to do um, as well because um, it can't all be writing papers, right? No, I mean, yeah, it's been, I've, um, I've done some soul searching in the last couple of weeks, also in the last couple of years. It's just, is the world going to be really be helped by the next PDF that I pump out or are there other things that we can all, we can all be doing? Um, okay. And so for interested listeners, we're also going to have, uh, an episode of this podcast where we get together with your team and all our team and have a big discussion. Speaking of chaos, yeah. epic crossover, <laughs> yep. epic crossover should be fun. Super. Yeah, no, it's been really great to listen to that. It's, um, I mean, I really love the narrative and the storytelling. I mean, the format's very different from ours. I mean, I'm impressed by, um, you know, there's just, just nothing like a story, right? It draws you into a place and suddenly you're kind of in that place. A part of your brain is in that place for like 20, 30 minutes. And that's really powerful. Um, frankly, it's, I've just been daunted at how much work it seems like it must be to do that as well as you're doing it. <laughs> One of the reasons now we're going to every other week, you know, um, both because of the workload that was creating for all of us to produce them every week and, but also to let the stories get richer, to give us more time with. Sure. Yeah. Well, cool, Phil. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that listeners hear before we sign off? Uh, Gosh, I don't, I've appreciated having the chance to chat with you. It's, I think it's been, um, it's been, you know, even off the record, a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time anyway, because, mm. you know, we sort of keep track of each other on Twitter to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the, the um, social, the, the yeah. strangeness of social media continues. I know, especially, yeah. ac- especially academic social media. Um, you yeah. Know, people, but, uh, um, no, I think this was, this was a fun conversation and we'll just leave it at that. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on.